Our Father, we come to you in the name of your Son, who came to die for us, that we might have life eternal. And we're so grateful, Lord, that you have given to us the Word of God to enlighten our path, to give us the guidelines of what it means to be Christian. Father, we believe even in the words of the great reformers in the absolute importance of the Word of God. And as we continue our study of this first book of the Old Testament, I pray that you will continue to give us understanding and insight. Father, we acknowledge again that the Holy Spirit of God is our teacher and the one who illumines our minds and our hearts, and we submit to his authority this morning. Father, we ask for your special blessing upon this time. We ask for your blessing throughout the Sunday School. In each and every class this morning, you will be very present and your spirit will be working in each of our hearts. In Christ's name, amen. I'd like to read beginning the first 11 verses of Genesis chapter 25. Genesis chapter 25, verses 1 to 11. Now Abraham took another wife whose name was Keturah, and she bore to him Zimram and Jokshan and Medan and Midian, and Ishbak and Shua. And Jokshan became the father of Sheba and Dedan. And the sons of Dedan were Asherim, Lethusim, Shem, and Leumim. Right? <laughs> and the sons of Midian were Ephah, Epher, Hanak, Abida, Eldah. These were the sons of Keturah. Now Abraham gave all that he had to Isaac, but to the sons of his concubines Abraham gave gifts while he was still living, and sent them away from his son Isaac eastward to the land of the east. And these are all the years of Abraham's life that he lived, 175 years. And Abraham breathed his last and died in a ripe old age, an old man and satisfied with life, and he was gathered to his people. Then his sons Isaac and Ishmael buried him in the cave of Machpelah in the field of Ephron, the son of Zohar, the Hittite, facing Mamre. And the field which Abraham purchased from, his sons, from the sons of Heth, there Abraham was buried with Sarah, his wife. And it came about after the death of Abraham that God blessed his son Isaac, and Isaac lived by Birlahiroi. Somewhere around the age of 140, Abraham took another wife, as we read in this passage, whose name was Keturah. As best as we can tell, the name Keturah meant smoky or covered with incense, something along that line. Scripture is absolutely silent as to her nationality. We have no information whatsoever about the background of this woman where she came from, uh, how they met. Uh, certainly it wasn't, you know, some enchanted evening across a crowded room. It's very possible that Keturah was one of his household, one of the, the great entourage that was in Abraham's employ. That would seem most likely, but it could have been that she was the daughter of, uh, well, probably not, <laughs> some neighbor, most likely not because uh, Abraham 
desperately sought to find someone from his family for his own sons, he's not likely to have married a Canaanite. And her name doesn't seem to be Canaanite anyway. She is mentioned only here in this passage and in the first chapter of First Chronicles, where you have kind of a summary uh, passage given of many of these events that we're reading about here. These are the only two places in Scripture where Keturah is mentioned. Now, she is called in First Chronicles chapter 1, concubine of Abraham. Here it says she is a wife, but down in verse 6 it says, but to the sons of his concubines, Abraham, ta-da, ta-da, uh, gave gifts. What, what does that say about her? Well, it seems that although she probably was fully married as a wife, her status was more that of a concubine in that she probably never became mistress of Abraham's estate. In other words, she never could step in and take over Sarah's position. She could not become to the household of Abraham what Sarah had been for those many, many, many years. After all, Sarah had been there from the very founding of the household until, of course, Abraham was late in his life. And uh, she had given birth to the son of promise. And there was no way another woman could step into Sarah's place. And so, whether she was uh, legally a concubine in those days or legally a wife, her status was in effect that very similar to Hagar as uh, she had been given to Abraham as a wife but was in effect a concubine uh, to him. Sarah had been matriarch of the clan for such a long time that no one could envision anyone else taking her place, especially a woman who probably was younger than Isaac, who married Abraham. And we assume that partly because of the fact that she gave Abraham so many children. The scripture lists six sons that Keturah gave to Abraham, but it's very probable, knowing the law of averages, that she also gave him many daughters, possibly as many as sons. And therefore, we're talking about a goodly number of years in which she was pregnant and thus giving birth to children. And so she was probably relatively young, at least considerably younger than Abraham by far. What she did do was, of course, to provide for Abraham the female companionship that he needed in these latter years of his life, as well as, of course, additional children. It seems, now this, this is a a psychological principle that I've heard from time to time. You know, most of us are aware of the fact that there are, and I don't, I'm not, I don't know if any of you live in such a situation, so I'm not speaking to anyone here, but my mother lives in a mobile home park where only seniors are allowed. You have to be at least 50 or older to live there, and uh, you cannot allow even your children or grandchildren to live there any length of time with you if they're under 50. That, to me, seems like, you know, I can understand that to some extent, but the other end of it is you're, you're, you're kind of circling around with people who are all dying off rather than having some youth and some vitality to kind of energize the situation and give you hope. <laughs> and uh, I think that in Abraham's older years, the fact that he had young children running around, I think this helped to stimulate him to live to 175. Uh, you know, bring a little joy and happiness into the later years of his life. 
Twitter, Twitter. <laughs> 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 well, <laughs> you have to remember that teenage is an American invention. <laughs> there were no teenagers before you come to mod the modern world. Uh, in, in most of history, there, were no, there was no such thing as a teenager. I mean, sure, people went through the teen years, but they were either children or they were adults. They were not, there was nothing in between. And, uh, of course, unfortunately, even in previous times, some adults never ceased become, being children, <laughs> even in their older years. But uh, th there wasn't the problem that we have now in many of our societies. But you can imagine Abraham at 150 out chasing some child around the tent, you know, saying, come back here, <laughs> you need a little punishment. Well, be that as it may, I, I think that the children in his life were good for him, as well as the, the, uh, the wife that he had in his, in his last years. In, back in chapter 17, we read that God told Abraham that he was going to become the father of many nations, plural. Not just the father of a nation, meaning the Israelite nation, but he would be the father of many nations. And certainly that was fulfilled in the fact that Ishmael became the father of a nation. And we're going to be looking a little bit at Ishmael's descendants. Isaac would have the son Jacob who would have many children and thus the nation of Israel would be born. But we have here also six additional nations or at least peoples who probably became additional nations listed here in Keturah's sons. It is uncertain as to whom descended from the four sons Zimram, Medan, Ishbak, and Shuah. But scripture goes on to say, even as we read this morning, that from Jokshan there came the sons Dedan and Sheba. And if you've studied the Old Testament much, you'll notice that the names Dedan and Sheba show up many times in the Old Testament. And they seem to be the ancestors of the Arabic peoples. Not all of the ancestors, but major ancestors of the Arabic peoples. Today, we use the term Arab in sort of a very general way. We say someone is an Arab. We, we're saying that that person comes from the Middle East, that they're not Jewish, not Turkish. And, and sometimes we include in that term Egyptians and Persians and others who are really not Arabic. Now, they have an Arabic religion. They speak the Arabic tongue. But ethnically, the Persians, for example, are not Arabs. They're a completely different race and so are the Egyptians. And many of the people of North Africa also are not Arabs, although they have adopted the Arab ways of life and the Arabic language. But the term Arab, as it's used today, not only includes often those people, usually inappropriately, but it includes really a hodgepodge of people in terms of their descent. They all, however, consider themselves to be descended from Abraham. Now, they did not all come from Abraham via Ishmael, however. They came from these other sons also. And uh, we'll know a little bit about that as we go along. So, Jokshan is the father of Dedan and Sheba, who seem specifically to be uh, ancestors of the major Arabic groups. 
But also, he, his son Midian became the father of the Midianites. And we know something about the Midianites because the problems that were faced by Israel later on relative to the Midianites. It's very interesting that somehow the, uh, the sons do merge to some extent too. That is, the descendants of Ishmael and the descendants of Keturah uh, do tend to merge. And we see this specifically, I think, as we look at the 37th chapter, uh, verse 25, 37 of Genesis, looking at uh, verse 25. Now, we know this story well because it has to do with Joseph being sold off into Egypt. But uh, there's something very interesting I want to point out here. Genesis 37, 25. Then they sat down to eat a meal. These are the, the brothers of, of Joseph after they've thrown him into the pit. And as they raised their eyes and looked, behold, a caravan of Ishmaelites was coming from Gilead with their camels bearing aromatic gum and balm and myrrh on their way to bring them down to Egypt. And Judah said to his brothers, What profit is it uh, to us to kill our brother and cover up his blood? Come, let us sell him to the Ishmaelites and not lay our hands on him, for he is our brother, our own flesh. And his brothers listened to him. Then notice this. Then some Midianite traders passed by, so they pulled him up and lifted Joseph out of the pit and sold him to the Ishmaelites for 20 shekels of silver. Now, I, to me, what that passage is saying is that the term Ishmaelite and Midianite is being used interchangeably. And somehow the Midianites and the Ishmaelites had become intermingled, intermarried, and uh, as we're looking at this particular time, were becoming uh, as if they were one people, although they were from two different uh, lines, one from Ishmael and, of course, the other being descended from Abraham through Keturah. Now, which tribe of Ishmaelites is not said. It's just you, the term Ishmaelites is used in general here. But as you will note, as we'll look a little bit later on, uh, Ishmael had 12 sons just as Isaac had 12 sons, I mean, Jacob had 12 sons. And, and so there's a parallel here. And whether uh, these Ishmaelites are from one of those specific tribes or a conglomeration is not specified. Alan? Wouldn't these be like cousins? I mean, they are cousins. Mm -hmm. They are cousins. And it cousins seems... To, to the Jew, to the, to excuse me? Cousins, cousins to the of oh, yes, they're related to the Israelites, too. Well, if we, I, I didn't figure that part out, you know. Uh, Ishmael's son's children would be to Isaac's son's children. Would that be first cousins? That's true. Different mothers. Half first cousins? <laughs> I've always tried to, you know, I, I've even read an article on this, which tried to explain what is a first cousin, what's a second, what's a, a cousin once removed, and all of this. And even after I read the article, I still couldn't figure out exactly what they always meant. Yes. Well, given the fact that sometimes the Arabic peoples cannot agree with one another, is this probably because it goes way back because of their different lineage? Oh, I think so, yeah. Th they've been fighting and feuding uh, from way back in the early history of their of the people. I think that you'll find if we could actually have a history of the descendants of Ishmael and of the descendants of Keturah, you would find 
that these groups were fighting each other amongst themselves very, very frequently. Most of us are probably familiar with the story of Lawrence of Arabia. And, and of course, Lawrence of Arabia, T.E. Lawrence, was a real person who was an officer in the British Army who was sent in to try to unite the Arabs in support of the British uh, attempts against Turkey in World War I. And one of the big problems that Lawrence Arabia faced was that the Arabic peoples were, were at each other all the time. The various tribal groups were constantly warring with each other and they had these long uh, histories of hatred and causing them to join together in a common cause against the Turks was not an easy task. And, and that's really what he spent months and even years doing until he finally more or less successfully did that with a lot of help from the British Foreign Office. But this, this hatred goes, as Roland is saying, way back in history. But yeah, they are. They're closely related to each other. But does that matter? Well, what I was thinking of, it talks about the Ishmaelites and, and the Midianites, like they're a whole, you know, a large group of people, and they're only like a, a, a you know, second generation at the most. And so there can't be that many of them. Well, it doesn't say how many there are here, of course. But look at, uh, well, uh, Ishmael had 12 sons, probably more or less an equal number of daughters. And they all married, and if they started having 12 each, it doesn't take long <laughs> when you're multiplying by 12 before you have a pretty good group of people. But, but we can't tell from this particular passage in Genesis 37 how many there were. We know later on, in the days of uh, Gideon that we're told that the Midianites spread out over the landscape like a plague of, plague of grasshoppers, but that, of course, is a, you know, what? Uh, that's 500 years or more later in time. So by then, they had multiplied. In the fifth verse back here in the 25th chapter, we say that, uh, we read that, now Abraham gave all that he had to Isaac. Abraham did not become senile in his old age. He did not forget the covenant that God had made with him. He transferred all of his property. The mantle of the covenant was given to his son Isaac. And Isaac was raised to know that that was what he was to inherit. He was raised to know the God of the covenant. And so as Abraham passes the covenant and the mantle of all of his authority and power and wealth and his estate uh, to Isaac. Isaac understands what it means. But Isaac is going to have to go through a maturing process himself, as we'll know a little bit later in, in the passage, to make it really his. It's sort of like, uh, you know, I don't know exactly who to compare it to, but someone who goes out and founds a great corporation and, and makes it really go and then wills it to his son. That son has some way got to make that corporation his by infusing it with his leadership and, and making it happen in a way that he senses it's just not something that was handed to him and thus uh, he had nothing to do with it really, but that he's made it fully his and, and, and put his imprint on it. And that's exactly what has to happen here as the transfer is made from Abraham to Isaac. Now it's very interesting that in this passage, 
there's no reference to Keturah trying to interfere or intervene on behalf of her sons. We don't have a passage here saying in Keturah argued with Abraham that her sons ought to have a share in the inheritance too. We see that Abraham had wisely already taken care of that, had he not. In verse 6 we read, but to the sons of his concubines, which I think in this case means Hagar, because it's, it's referring back to Ishmael too, and Keturah, Abraham gave gifts while he was still living and sent them away from his son Isaac eastward to the land of the east. Why did Abraham do that? Did he not love Ishmael? Did he not love these six sons uh, by Keturah? I, I think he loved them. We know that as we look back at the earlier passage relative to Ishmael, he pled with God. Oh God, let Ishmael be the son of promise. And God said, no. The son born of Sarah will be the son of promise. But I will multiply Ishmael and he will become a great nation. I, I think Abraham loved Ishmael. And we know that he, it was very hard for him to send Ishmael away. And I think by inference, we're going to see as we go through this passage that uh, probably contact was not broken completely at that point. And so now he gives gifts to these other six sons and sends them off to the east. What does it mean to the east? Well, Abraham is living in Hebron, uh, which is uh, just west of the Sea of uh, the Dead Sea. So probably it means he sent them off into what we would today call Jordan or Northern Arabia. Uh, there's no inference here that he sent them clear over to Mesopotamia. Probably would not do that because they will become mostly nomadic and thus Mesopotamia wouldn't be the suited place for them. Uh, they couldn't go someplace in between Mesopotamia and Jordan because that's the Syrian desert. And people generally don't just live out there. They pass through from time to time, but they don't live out there. It's, it's, it's a pretty sterile place. It's a hostile place out there in the sort of, you, you visualize the Fertile Crescent and that, that uh, space in underneath the upside down U there. That's a pretty hostile place. And uh, certainly that's not where he sent them to live. I think the, the key here is the fact that he did this while he was still living. In other words, he saw to it that they left. He saw to it that they got what was coming to them. He saw to it that Isaac was protected from contest over the will, from civil war or anything else that would hinder the smooth transfer of the mantle from Abraham to Isaac. What did he... Yes, Mark? Twenty-one uh, Genesis twenty-one fourteen talks about sending Hagar away mm -hmm. with the same idea. Mm -hmm. Exactly, and the, the for the same reason as you're pointing out there, as these were sent away. Now, what gift did he give to the sons? It does not say what gift he gave to the sons, but we can assume that probably he gave to these sons some cash, more or less, probably, but certainly he gave them seed herds, small groups of animals, probably a few goats, a few sheep, a few cattle, a few donkeys, whatever, so that they could then go out and generate their own herds. He had vast herds. He could easily give to six sons, you know, a hundred or so total animals and say, all right, you go and you make this work. 
for yourself, like giving somebody who's a baker a little bit of yeast and saying, now you take care of your own baking from now on. This is all the yeast you're going to get, you know. And uh, so I believe that's probably the gift that he gave to them because, as we're going to see later on, these people tended mostly to be nomadic herdsmen, although not exclusively, probably. He could do this without significantly diminishing the estate that Isaac would inherit because Abraham had so much wealth that a small amount here given to six or seven sons was not going to significantly reduce the principle that was left for Isaac. Besides, as we're going to later see, Isaac, it didn't matter because Isaac saw that wealth multiply vastly as God blessed him. Abraham has played a vital role in 25% of the text of Genesis. And now, after 175 years of life, he dies. Now, 175 sounds really archaic to us. In those days, it wasn't quite so archaic because we know that Sarah lived uh, to be 130, 40 in that range. Uh, Isaac uh, will live to be 180. Uh, Ishmael lived to be 137, so, you know, uh, these all live fairly old. But I think in the case of, of Isaac, uh, that is of Abraham, it still was considered pretty old for his day. It was sort of like today, somebody living to maybe 110, probably sort of in that range, uh, would be the sense of, uh, of Abraham living to be 175. Now, what's, I think, really, really interesting in this passage is notice in verse 8, in the last line it said, well, it says, And Abraham breathed his last and died in a ripe old age, an old man. Notice the double emphasis here, ripe old age and old man, and, and from this we can derive that it probably wasn't just a normal death time. But notice the next phrase, and satisfied with life. You and I live in a society where very few people are ever recorded as having said, oh, I'm satisfied with life, you know. Most people are hanging on tenaciously because they haven't achieved whatever it was they hoped to achieve. They, in many cases, didn't even know what they hoped to achieve. But Abraham, we're told, was satisfied with life. What, what does that really mean? I think that that means, for one thing, that he really did experience the best that this life had to offer under the hand of the blessing of God. I mean, he was a man of wealth. Sure, he had a tremendous struggle. It, I mean, his wife was barren for so long before the Son of Promise was born. But then the child came miraculously, and, and Abraham saw him uh, flower into maturity. And although he himself wouldn't see this great nations or group of nations that God had promised, uh, he would see the, the beginnings of it in Ishmael, of course, the six sons of Keturah. And I think there wasn't anything in this life that Abraham still longed to do or to be or to have. But I think beyond that, this satisfaction means that Abraham was ready to meet his God. I think he was fully prepared to go to be with the Lord. He had lived his life in a way in which God was the center of all that he had done. He had not been perfect in his walk, as we have well noted. 
He failed on many occasions, but he walked in faith and he experienced uh, the overwhelming grace of God in his life day after day. You know, I think if we ourselves take account of what God is doing, we have to say, like Abraham, that we have experienced the overwhelming grace of God. Because I think if we're honest with ourselves, we'll have to say, I have not lived this day as I would to God I could have lived it. I have failed here, I have failed there, but God still loves me, God still accepts me. Tomorrow is a new day, a new slate. God has washed it all away. He has buried the sin in the depths of the sea. And thus, that grace is so clear to us as it was to Abraham. And uh, I think what we have to do is view the fact that God counted that faith that Abraham had it had in him and imputed to him righteousness on behalf of that faith. And of course, God was the author of that faith, just as he is for our faith, and just as that righteousness is imputed to us because of that faith in Jesus Christ. We get a, a, going back to a passage we read more than once here relative to this, because I think it's so apropos. Uh, back in Hebrews 11, as we look at this passage, we get an idea of what God saw when he looked at Abraham. See, we look at each other and we look at ourselves with a jaundiced eye. I look at myself and I think, oh man, how could I do that? How could I think that? How could I say that? And, and we look at one another and we see each other's faults. But God looks at us through the blood of Christ if we are his. And notice how God views the situation here with Abraham. By faith, Abraham, when he was called, obeyed by going out to a place which he was to receive for an inheritance, and he went out not even knowing where he was going. By faith, he lived as an alien in the land of promise, as in a foreign land dwelling in tents with Isaac and Jacob, fellow heirs of the same promise. For he was looking for the city which has foundations, whose architect and builder is God. Now we've heard that, that verse many times and there's no commentator who can explain that verse perfectly to us. But we assume and, and we sense because we know, we've, we've seen the whole revelation, right? We've seen Genesis 1 through Revelation 22. We can read all that God has said to the human race. And we know what that city is. Because in the latter part of the book of Revelation, we're told about the new Jerusalem which comes down out of heaven from God. What did Abraham know about that? Is, is this simply God's way of saying that he was pressing on for that, that joyous eternal life with God without specifically knowing that there was going to be a city without, which has the foundations whose architect and builder is God? Uh, what, what did he really know? Did God reveal this to him, or is this simply the uh, revelation given to the author of the Hebrews as a way of explaining uh, the goal that Abraham had in his life? We don't know, but we can put it together because of our understanding of the book of Revelation and know that his goal is the same as our goal is to be. And he pressed on for that time when he would be with God eternally. 
Now, there are those who argue, well, in the Old Testament, people didn't really have a good idea of eternal life, and, and they just thought of the grave as being the end, and David says, oh God, if I die and go down the grave, who then is going to praise you? And, and from this, they interpret that the Old Testament people didn't have an understanding of eternal life. I don't think that's true. I think when David wrote things like that, he was, he was writing uh, because of the pain in his life and, and he was uh, wanting God to do something to meet the special need. I don't think he was giving theology about eternal life there. I think as you read through the Old Testament, you'll have to sense that these people had an understanding not as clear as ours because they didn't have the New Testament, but they had an understanding of eternal life. They had an understanding that they would be with God one day and that they would walk with Him in a better world. It's very difficult to come across any people, any place in this world, primitive or advanced, who do not have an understanding or a belief in an afterlife. Even the ancient Egyptians knew that life would be better in the thought that life would be better in the afterlife than it was for them in this life. And wherever you go, you find this to be true. Well, if this is known to be true by the ancient Egyptians, <laughs> certainly the Israelites would know that because they had the revelation from God Almighty Himself. Abraham was buried by his two sons, Isaac and Ishmael. He was, bought, he, he was buried in that cave that he had bought for his beloved wife the cave in which he buried her, the cave of Machpelah, which is located today inside the city of Hebron. Double cave, which is the meaning of the word Machpelah. And uh, he was put in there alongside his wife to rest forever? No. Maybe the bones, even they won't rest forever, right? Uh, in that spot. But... As was the case for Sarah, his spirit went to be with God even as hers did. Now, we have a New Testament passage where we have a statement coming from the Lord himself that I believe gives us understanding of what the ancients believed and understood concerning the afterlife. Let's turn for a moment, if you will, to Luke 16. Now this passage is, is very, very important because it not only teaches uh, something of the truth that we know in Scripture that whatsoever we sow we reap, but it also teaches us something about the fact that there is a place of blessing and that there is a place of cursing after life is over. There are many, I, I remember one day I had a person in, in a science school class I was teaching in the Bay Area and he was just badly, horribly offended that I thought there was a place where people could go which would not be a place of blessing, which would not be heaven. And uh, I thought, oh, you know, uh, Christ was so clear about this and scripture is so clear about this. I mean, it's not something that we want it's not something that we would think up and say, yeah, that's the way it ought to be. It's simply what God has expressed to be true. There is a teaching, as probably most of you know, uh, within the Roman Catholic Church uh, concerning uh, purgatory. Now, purgatory is a very, very rational idea. 
it makes all the sense in the world when you think about it. And, and really, that's why purgatory exists, you know, because of the, of the intermingling of, of, of rational thinking of the ancient Greeks, uh, along with Catholic theology, especially at the hands of Thomas Aquinas, who, who blended those two together so well. And, and it's, it's very reasonable and very rational. You know, the really, really good people, we can say, should go to heaven. The really, really bad people should go to hell. But what about everybody else in the middle? These people seem to be good, but they just aren't as good you know, as the, quote, saints. Well, they would go to a purgatory, right? Purgatory makes all the sense. You go there where you kind of get cleaned up from those bad things that are still in your life until you're ready to, to leap off into heaven. That, that just makes good sense. The only problem with it is it's not in Scripture. No, there, there's no scriptural reference to it. The scripture makes it very clear. There's the sheep and there are the goats. There's no goat sheeps or sheep goats or something in between, you know. Uh, we're in one camp or the other. We're either in heaven or we're in hell. And, and that's hard thinking. That's hard teaching. But it's scriptural teaching. Look, if you will, at, at verse 22. Now it came about that the poor man died, and he was carried away by the angels to Abraham's bosom. And the rich man died, and he, and also, and he was buried. Let me, let me read a few verses on. And in Hades, he lifted up his eyes, being in torment, and saw Abraham far away, and Lazarus in his bosom. And he cried out and said, Father Abraham, have mercy on me, and send Lazarus, that he may dip the tip of his finger in water and cool off my tongue, for I am in agony in this flame." But Abraham said, Child, remember that during your life you received your good things and likewise Lazarus bad things. But now he is being comforted here and you are, you are in agony. And besides all this, between us and you there is a great chasm fixed in order that those who wish to come over from, uh, from here to you may not be able to do so and that none may cross over from there to us. Now, we can just say, well, you know, this is just a story. It's, it's just a parable. It doesn't mean anything literally. But this is Jesus' teaching. Jesus doesn't teach us falsehood. Jesus doesn't just tell stories that don't have basis in reality. Jesus wouldn't say that there was a place for the blessed and a place for the cursed if there wasn't. He would not say there's a chasm fixed between them that cannot be crossed if there wasn't. Notice what the place of blessing is called. Abraham's bosom. Hmm. Sounds like a strange name to us. But it, it's, it's showing us the significance of Abraham, particularly to the Israelite nation. And, and as you read down through there, the man in Hades calls back and says, Father Abraham. Now, Father Abraham responds, which seems to indicate that there is a conscious existence here and that he's able to talk back and forth. Abraham was not still in Machpelah. Abraham went to be with God. Now, the Hebrews had this concept, the, the biblical teaching of Sheol, or Sheol, as some would say. And, and the, it seems to be that Sheol was the place of the dead, but it had two zones in it. 
One was Abraham's bosom, the other was Hades. Hades, which means Gehenna, the place of burning. It refers, the, the, it's, it's based on the type of the Valley of Hinnom, which is right outside the walls of uh, ancient Jerusalem and was where the garbage heap was and which was constantly smoldering 24 hours a day, 365 days a year as the garbage in the garbage dump was burning. And it was considered to be sort of like passing into the Valley of Hell to go through the Valley of Hinnom. Obviously, uh, that trash dump doesn't exist today, but you still can walk through hell <laughs> if you want to. When we were uh, living in Jerusalem for uh, a period of time, uh, a couple of weeks, we lived in the Scottish hospice, which was right across from the uh, old Mount Zion, and we had to walk through hell every day. <laughs> that is the Valley of Hinnom. Uh, to, to get there. And of course, it's very pleasant today, little gardens and park and everything down there. But in the days of Jesus and before, it was a smoldering dump. And so it became sort of the type of, of the place of punishment. So Abraham went to be with his maker, and he becomes the symbol of, of the one who receives all of his people as they would come a dying in faith in the subsequent years. Now Ishmael comes to help bury his father. Ishmael. Ishmael's been gone a long time. Ishmael was sent away at least 70 years before. Ishmael had ceased being a teenager and was now a fully mature adult, probably close to 90 years of age. He was still living in the wilderness of Paran, that is, in the northern part of the Sinai. He comes to help bury his father. What does that tell us? Well, one thing it tells us, he cares. He cares enough to come, to leave behind whatever he's doing there, and to come and help bury his father. Now, did he hope that by doing so he would receive more? There's no indication in Scripture that he thought he'd get anything else out of this. He simply cared about his father. Now, if he had been sent away uh, under the... I mean, since he was sent away under the terms, as Mort was saying back there in chapter 21, where he was just sent away with his mother at, to, to get out of the picture so he wouldn't be a hindrance to uh, Sarah and to Isaac... Wouldn't he harbor this bitterness in his, in his soul? Would he not just turn his back on his father and want nothing to do with him? Notice, also, he got there in time to help bury his father. Which meant, you know, it's not like, oh, my father's dead, he hears this a year later and goes over to help. No. He must have heard of the death of his father shortly after it occurred, or knew that he was on his deathbed and came to be with him when he died. What does that tell us? That there was contact between Ishmael and Abraham. That there still was communication going on there. It seems to indicate that there wasn't any particular bitterness, that somehow Abraham had continued to look after this son of his uh, at a distance. And I think that's implied again in, in verse 6 where it says, and to the sons of his concubines, plural, 
Abraham gave gifts while he was still living. I think he sent gifts to Ishmael as well as he sent, gave gifts to the other six sons. Because when he first sent him away, he sent him away with virtually nothing. Just water and a little food and, and get out of here. Reluctantly he did so, but nevertheless he did so at the command of God. And so there was, I believe, this contact between father and son, and that Ishmael may have even been there during the last hours of his father's life. Certainly got there shortly after his father's death. Does this mean that there was communication between Ishmael and Isaac? Probably so. Remember, Isaac was living in Bir Lahairoi, which is down in the Negev, and is not terribly far from the wilderness of Paran. So it's very possible that the two had some kind of communication going, not, uh, probably not on a regular basis, but they checked on each other from time to time. The sons of Keturah are not mentioned at all here which seems to indicate that none of those six sons had anything to do with the burial of their father. They were over in the east. They didn't hear. Maybe there was no communication being carried on. They didn't care. Whatever the situation was, we're not even told that Keturah was there. We might infer that she probably was, but maybe she was mad at Abraham for sending her six sons away. We, we don't know. We can only speculate when it comes to those things. Following the death of Abraham, we're told something uh, very important in this uh, passage in verse 11. It came about after the death of Abraham that God blessed his son Isaac. Does that mean that there was no blessing upon Isaac while Abraham was alive? No, I don't think that's what it means at all. It means that now the focus of the covenant is upon Isaac. Isaac will be the primary recipient of God's special blessing because in him, God is bringing about the establishment of his nation. And through Isaac will come, and, and this is one of the most fascinating stories that you find in the uh, 25th chapter of Genesis, is the birth of Isaac and Jacob, I mean of Esau and Jacob. Uh, God is, is bringing this about. And so God specifically blesses Isaac and as we look at the uh, 26th chapter of Genesis, we'll see how he blessed him. I mean, the implication here is that God blessed him beyond you know, his wildest dream. He became a man of vast wealth, even greater wealth, it would seem, than his father Abraham. But where was Isaac living? Still living in Beer Lahairoi, down in the Negev. Okay, let's look at verse 12 through 18 of Genesis 25. Now, these are the records of the generations of Ishmael, Abraham's son, whom Hagar the Egyptian, Sarah's maid, bore to Abraham. And these are the names of the sons of Ishmael by their names in the order of their birth. Nebaioth, the firstborn of Ishmael, and Kedar, and Adbeel, and Mibsam and Mishma, and Duma, and Masa, and Hadad, and Timur, Tima, and Jetur, Nafish, and Kedema. These are the sons of Ishmael, and these are their names by their villages and by their camps, twelve princes according to their tribes. And these are their, 
these are the years of the life of Ishmael, 137 years. And he breathed his last and died and was gathered to his people. And they settled from Havilah to Shur, which is east of Egypt, as one goes toward Assyria. He settled in defiance of all his relatives. We're going to know a lot about Isaac in the chapters which follow. We will learn a lot about Isaac. But what do we know about Ishmael? Really very little. We discover, of course, that he grew to manhood in the wilderness of Paran. We were told that earlier. We were told that he also married an Egyptian. Now, why did he marry an Egyptian? Because his mother was an Egyptian and she's the one who picked his wife for him. <laughs> Doesn't say whether he liked that or not. But he married an Egyptian. Now, what does that say? First of all, it tells us that Ishmael was half Egyptian genetically. All of his sons were three-quarters Egyptian genetically. You know, what, what does that really mean? Well, it tells us that the Arabs have a lot of Egyptian blood in them. And so today, modern Egypt, which has adopted the Arabic code of dress, the Arabic religion, the Arabic language, the Arabic culture, it's sort of like, come around, you know? Turnabout is fair play, I suppose you could say. We also learned that at about 13 years of age, he was circumcised as Abraham obeyed God in, in establishing that as the sign of the covenant. But the transmitter of the covenant was not to be Ishmael, and God made that very clear. The transmitter of the covenant was to be Isaac. But God told Ishmael, uh, uh, Abraham that Ishmael would be the father of a great nation. And that was a comfort, you see, to Abraham. Let me uh, turn back again to uh, Genesis 17, 20. <clears throat> this, this is after uh, Abraham says to God, God, why don't you let Ishmael be the son of promise? After all, he is my son. That would, that would really solve a lot of problems. But God says, no. As for Ishmael, I have heard you, though. You know, he prayed for Ishmael. God says, I have heard you. Behold, I will bless him and will make him fruitful and will multiply him exceedingly. He shall become the father of 12 princes and I will make him a great nation. But my covenant I will establish with Isaac, whom Sarah will bear to you at this season next year. So Abraham was comforted relative to his son Ishmael, that he would become a great nation. And, and we've just read of the 12 sons that were born uh, to, to Ishmael, and certainly uh, probably a like number of daughters. There is no record, as I pointed out before, of continued contact between Abraham and Ishmael, but I believe it is implied in the things we just read uh, relative to the gifts that were given and to uh, Ishmael being there at the time to bury his uh, father. With the death of Abraham, the two sons now become center stage. Abraham is, is gone. He's left the stage. Now these two sons, uh, 
uh, Ishmael and, and Isaac are center stage. But as you well know from your own study of Scripture, God's focus in Scripture has been on His covenant people. And so Ishmael is shunted off to the side with just this brief record being given of the birth of the twelve sons and of some of their descendants, which is given to us not only here, but in 1 Chronicles uh, chapter 1. We don't know much about these twelve sons, just as we don't know much about the sons of uh, Keturah. But we do know that the modern, modern Arabic people claim to be the descendants of Abraham. And they claim to be the descendants of Abraham not through Isaac, but primarily through Ishmael. And so what we have here is the certain intermarriage of the Ishmaelites probably with the sons of uh, Keturah, their, with their descendants, that is, in the centuries that would uh, pass. Now you'll notice it's said in this passage that some of these uh, descendants of uh, Ishmael lived in cities or villages and some lived in camps. We might think those are just synonyms for places where they lived. I don't think so. I think it tells us something about the lifestyle of these sons. Some of them lived in villages, probably became sedentary farmers. Remember, Abraham was not a farmer. Abraham was a nomad. And we're going to note when we get to the next chapter that Isaac suddenly becomes a farmer, and that's a major transition that takes place at least for a, a period of time in, in the life of, uh, of Isaac. But it, it would seem that some of Abraham's sons, uh, Abraham's grandsons, I guess we would say here, uh, through Ishmael, became farmers, became traders. Well, of course, we read about the Ishmaelites in, in that 37th chapter, leading a caravan that was coming up from Canaan going down towards Egypt. And that's the trade, the merchant aspect of them. And uh, so some of them lived in sedentary villages, while others lived in camps. And this would imply nomadic camps, where they would strike their tents and move from time to time to another place because of the need of the animals for new pasture, pasturage. It also may imply which we know to be true about many of these uh, peoples, that as raiders, they often move from place to place to be closer to a more fruitful place to raid <laughs> and to uh, gain the things that we want. Uh, that is, that they want. <laughs> Hopefully, they want. Um, that herding was a major occupation of these. Let, let me just, we'll, we'll finish with this verse in um, Isaiah. The end of, near the end of Isaiah, in chapter <clears throat> 60, verse 7, the first half of the verse says this, And all the flocks of Kedar will be gathered together to you, and the rams of Nebaioth will minister to you. Which And, and since Kedar and uh, Nebaioth are the two main sons in terms of being able to trace the lineage, it would seem that a major portion, at least of the Ishmaelites, were herdsmen. And of course, this particular passage was written a thousand years later 
when they had been multiplied into probably the hundreds of thousands, even millions in terms of population. Well, hundreds of thousands anyway. Uh, but we're going to next week look at uh, Kedar and Nebaioth particularly because one of those terms, particularly the term Kedar, shows up several times in Scripture and almost always seems to imply um, the Arabic uh, peoples.